Welcome to the Axiom Podcast, episode 28. Welcome back to another edition of the Axiom Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Brannon, and today we're going to be talking about rewarding professionals. But first, we have to talk about what is a professional. You hear a lot of talk about knowledge workers. I love to talk about knowledge workers. Got a great chance to hear Ron Baker talk about knowledge workers a couple weeks ago at a conference I went to. Uh, we talk about white-collar professionals and all the challenges facing the professions. I'm reading a great book that was recommended by Ron Baker uh, about professionals and how that whole industry is changing. But today, I'm not going to talk about professionals from the standpoint that we're typically used to talking about them in the, in the context of knowledge work. I want to talk about professionals as distinct from amateurs. And the best, uh, the, the best kind of treatment of this, I think, comes from Stephen Pressfield's book, Turning Pro. And you can use a sports analogy where you talk about amateur athletes versus professional athletes. And amateur athletes do it. You know, they may love the game and, and they may be very, very good, but they're not getting paid to do what they do. And getting paid for it re- requires a whole different level of commitment to your craft and, and treating it as your profession. And so that's what I want to talk about today. So we could be talking about doctors and lawyers at one end of the spectrum, but we could also be talking about maintenance supervisors, landscapers, roofers, contractors, HVAC techs babysitters, I mean, you name it, that just about anything that you can do to earn money, there's a difference between just doing it to get the paycheck and doing it as a profession. And that's that professionalism aspect of it is specifically what I want to talk about today. And I want to talk about it in the context of how do employers reward their professionals, because it's an area that I see get screwed up a lot when we talk about performance compensation. Some of the things we'll talk about today fit into a performance compensation kind of uh, mindset or, or setup, but we're, we're talking about a narrower scope of performance compensation where we talk about what is it about a performance compensation system that is particularly appealing to that professional subset of employees. Again, professional being those who have a different mindset than their amateur counterparts. Even though both are earning a paycheck, one is earning it in a a little bit different way with different mindset and ultimately different performance. So let's talk about that first. What is it that makes rewarding professionals different from the rest of the world or or how should rewards for professionals be different? I think one of the biggest differences I see between professionals and Everybody else is they have the they can see and feel and relate this direct link between their performance and their value to whatever organization it is that they're serving. And probably the best example I have of this comes from my wife. When we were dating, she was uh, a few years into her professional teaching career. She was an elementary school teacher, and I got to see her in one school as we were dating. And then we right before we got married, we both moved to Tampa, St. Petersburg, Tampa area, and I got to see her teach in Hillsborough County School District. And then after we got married, we both moved, obviously, to uh, Manatee County here in Bradenton. I got to see her in a professional teaching environment there. And I got to I got to see her 
and and see behind the scenes what she did to prepare for serving her students and her, and the families and the administration at those different schools. And I got to see how her colleagues, uh, as we developed relationships with her fellow teachers and we would do things with them, I got to meet the spouses and got a peek behind the scenes into what their lives were like as professionals and as teachers. I, I noticed a distinct difference in some of the environments that she was in versus others. And one of the things I greatly respected about Josie, and we, I remember having a lot of conversations with her early on in our marriage about career and ambitions and things we want to do. And I said, one of the things that impresses me about you is you truly teach the t- teaching as a profession. And she could definitely see, and I could see from the outside looking in, this connection between her performance and improvement in that performance and her value to the students, to the families, to the administration, and and the if you want to get really uh, nuanced about it, to the community as a whole based on her commitment to professionalism and constantly developing her craft and getting better at it. And it may be hard to get your arms around, but it's one of those things that you just know it when you see it. You know a true professional when you see it. I I have heard stories about professional cab drivers who kind of just took everything to the next level. They had business cards. They had water for their patrons. They asked for reviews. They were uh, asking questions and relating to customers in a way that demonstrated an excellence to customer service. I have experienced that on an airport shuttle before, the difference between airport shuttle drivers and the professional airport shuttle driver driver versus the guy who was just filling a seat and shifting gears and getting people from one place to the other. So it doesn't matter you know, what your vocation is. There's a difference between the professions that we are talking about today. We're talking about that class of people who really aspires to consistently do better and raise the bar in their performance. And they do that because they perceive a connection between their value to those they're serving and their increased performance. So if you're going to compensate people like that, you, I guess the first thing that you have to recognize is there are some people who do, who do not see that connection at all, and they just believe that everybody should have an equal value. These are the kind of folks who will will tell the high-performing colleague, hey, you know, slow down, you're making us look bad. And you just have to... I think you can do, I've talked before about hiring A players, and you can do your best, but on the, on the whole, A players are only going to make up between 15 and 25% of the population you're hiring from. So if you just play the odds, three out of four people are going to be amateurs, and one out of four is going to be that A player professional. And how you reward that person first depends on you understanding there's a difference between them and everybody else. Now, I'm not saying you should have two different reward systems. I'm saying what we typically do is we cater our reward system to the three-quarters of the population that are not acting as professionals, and it has a detrimental impact not only on our business as a whole, but it drives those 25% A players out of the business altogether. And that's what I want to give you just a few ideas about today and what I think is going to be a fairly brief podcast, if I don't get sidetracked, uh, so that you can make sure that you not only recognize the difference between those two groups, but you're doing things to retain that quarter percent and or that twenty five percent, and you are doing things to incent the seventy five percent to move up. Because within that seventy five percent, there are some people who just don't know better. We're going to talk about that in a second. So, how do you reward this group? This gets to the heart of. Everything we're going to talk about today, and we're only seven minutes and 
and 30 seconds or so in. And this gets to the heart of everything in this podcast. So before we get to the 10-minute mark, 15-minute mark tops, you're going to hear everything you need to know out of this podcast, and you can skip the rest. I'm just kidding. But this is really the meat of it. So how do you reward this group? Well, the number one thing you have to do is you have to tie rewards to performance. And they should not be arbitrary. That performance has to be objective. So number one, tie rewards to their performance. Number two, make the performance measurable so that your evaluation of that performance is not subjective. So number one, rewards are tied directly to performance. Number two, the performance is measurable so that at the end of a a month or a quarter, I'm not just sitting back and putting my legs on the desk and going, ah, who was the top performer this quarter? Who was the top performer this year? No, I've made performance measurable so there is a yardstick I can go to, there is a report I can pull, and it will tell me exactly who was the top performer or who were the top class of performers. So number one, tie rewards performance. Number two, make performance measurable. Number three, make the measures self-trackable. And that is the, the key lesson in today's podcast. Make the measures self-trackable because the difference between professionals and everybody else is that they love to track their own performance. And if you can incent them to do that by tying a reward to that performance, you are going to exponentially increase not only the job satisfaction of those people, but their productivity, their morale, everything about their contribution to your organization. Make the measures self-trackable. They love to track this stuff. All you're going to be doing is tying a reward to it. So let me just recap real quickly. So how do you reward this group? Well, number one, we said tie the rewards to performance. Number two, that performance has to be measurable. So you got to figure out what you're going to measure. And number three, you have to make those measures self-trackable. So this means that they kind of have to be easy to follow. Like if you've got to, got to, to um, digest a SQL database and run 14 queries to spit out the measure that you're going to base performance on, that is not the answer. This has to be something that on a tally sheet or a spreadsheet that they can keep on their computer or a notepad or a whiteboard, whatever it is, they have to be able to on a day in, day out basis, possibly even on an hour in, hour out basis, keep track of these measures that are most important to their performance. So I need to tell you, though, that in, the, in this third area of making measures self-trackable, there is a difference between self-tracking and self-reporting. And I'm talking about self-tracking, not self-reporting. And what I mean by that is when you make something self-trackable, it means that the people who are carrying out an activity, they can keep track of it themselves, but they are not the ultimate authority for making sure the reports are right. So let's say that in the, the simplest of all scenarios, Uh, you were to to say, our company policy is that every single customer inquiry is answered within 60 minutes. And we have a 95% uh, 95 standard for that happening. 95% of the time, we want to be able to call people back within one hour to resolve their problem. Is that self-trackable? Yes, because the person who is responsible for returning those calls can keep track on a tally sheet how many people they were responsible for calling that day and how many of those people got called within 
60 minutes. That's easily self-trackable. But if then they turn that tally sheet in at the end of the day, and that's the sole mechanism that we use to track whether or not we were able to return people's calls within a certain amount of time, that is self-reporting, and that's not what I'm advocating. There are times when self-reporting is really the only way it gets done. And a good example of this I can give is back in the day when I had to keep timesheets at an accounting firm all the time. I filled out my timesheet each day, and then I would input that into a system, and I would also input it into a spreadsheet. So in essence, that was kind of self-reporting because I was the sole determiner of the input, meaning it all came from me. But in most systems, go back to the, the example we were talking about with customers being called back within 60 minutes, there should be some kind of ticket system where the ticket is getting issued, it's getting time-stamped, and then the ticket is getting revisited and resolved or followed up on, and there's another time-stamp in the system as a whole can measure down to the second or tenth of a second even what the response time was for every particular ticket. We average this, we have the system average those up and report them on a real-time dashboard in the customer service floor, something like that. That is so that's the kind of reporting mechanism that should be in place. But what we're talking about here is if our standard is every customer gets called back within 60 minutes. It is self-trackable, meaning I can look at the number of tickets that I have out there and I'm getting ready to make a call. I'm going to select a call that I know is about to expire on that 60 minutes or within the window. Or if there's one outside the window, I'm going to make sure I get to it as quickly as possible because when I keep my own tallies, I want to be able to put as many tallies in the column that says returned within 60 minutes as possible and as few as possible over in the column that wasn't returned within that time. So I can track it myself, but it's not the, the organization isn't solely dependent on my little tracking mechanism to report things. And that's a very simple example. A better example would be things like sales commissions. So sales commissions are definitely one of those areas that is exactly what we're talking about. Is, is performance tied to something that's measurable? Yes, the number of sales made is the direct measure, and the reward is the commission that the salesperson gets. So we do we want them to be able to self track that yes meaning we want to have a commission structure that's easy enough to follow that they can calculate their own commission and they do not have to wait on finance or the sales manager or whomever to feed all the information about the sale into a black box and have it spit out a number that's the sales commission those kind of commission structures fly in the face of this rewarding professionals if you want to treat your sales staff like professionals then you need to simplify your commission structure so that on the back of a napkin they can figure out what they're going to make on a particular job but you're not you're not dependent on them turning in the napkins in order for you to calculate their actual commission that's the difference between self-trackable and self-reporting so we want things that are self-trackable but we want independently verifiable reporting that is outside of this self-trackable stuff so if you haven't if you haven't caught on yet the trend here typically is simplicity you don't want to design reward systems that are so complex it takes an actuary or a CPA in the corner office to figure out what the reward's actually going to be. The most, uh, the, the most um, behavioral impacting rewards scenarios are those that are very, very simple. I, probably the best example of this is piece rate pay. Piece rate pay is about the simplest pay for performance mechanisms you could ever design. And it's outside the context of what we're talking about here in professionals. But in piece rate system, you basically get paid by the piece of work that you complete. And at the end of the day, you just look at how high the stack is of stuff you got done, and you know exactly what you're going to get paid. That's very, very simple. 
So that's the kind of thing that you want to tend towards. Simplicity usually equals better behavior modification um, and, and easier. it's easier to change habits when you have simple systems as opposed to complex systems. So the professionals, I want to talk for, so in a perfect world, you've got a system where you recognize that you've got a mix of professionals and non-professionals or professionals and amateurs in the parlance that we're talking about today. And you go, well, I want to reward the professionals and something we're going to talk about later, I want to give the amateurs a chance to rise to the, the occasion and become professionals. So I'm, I put this system in place, and it's it's uh, the rewards. It rewards performance. The performance is measurable, and the measures are self trackable. So I've covered all three bases. That's a perfect world. I'm going to tell you what happens when you have professionals in your organization and you don't reward them as professionals. Right. So this is what and. If you've been in the workplace for very long, you have seen this. I guarantee you've seen this. I've seen this. I've experienced it firsthand, and a lot. And I've seen it in uh, client situations. So what I'm going to tell you in the next couple minutes comes directly out of my own personal experience, and also watching clients try to stem the tide of of all this negative stuff that's happening because they had no system in place to reward professionals. So the first thing that happens is the professionals perceive that their increasing value due to their increasing performance isn't being recognized or even it's not only is it not being rewarded it's not even being recognized so what they're seeing is that i'm getting better at what i do i'm getting better and i'm getting more experience i'm developing skills i'm studying things at night i'm i am using the resources at my disposal to improve myself i'm probably even spending some of my own money taking classes or i'm what i see a lot in in organizations and what i try to do when i was a part of these organizations is i'm developing systems that will help others be more effective more productive more valuable to the organization and I perceive that my value to this organization is going up, not because of some sense of entitlement, not because I've just been here for a while. No, because I can see that my performance is getting better and better and better, right? I'm responsible for more sales. I'm responsible for more hours. I'm responsible for more profits. I'm responsible for higher customer service. Whatever the measure is, I can see on a day-to-day basis that I'm getting better and better and better. And I rightly perceive that my value to the organization is getting higher and higher and higher. But it's not only not being rewarded, it's not even being recognized. So that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is they see arbitrary rewards being handed out left and right that are very inconsistent with their meritocratic values. So they they have this belief system that you should get rewarded for what you do. And that's, that's like core to them. That's, that's what makes them a professional in the first place. That's, that's what drives them wanting to improve their performance and, and what drives that desire to see increased value. It's just it's part of their soul, and they see it, but what they see, or they feel it, but what they see out there in the organization they're in is the system of just arbitrary rewards, like, Christmas bonuses and and um, anniversary bonuses and year end bonuses, where they're getting the same amount as somebody who they they clearly can see their performance is not up to up to what they're putting out, and this other individual is getting the same bonus that they are. 
right? Or this, the same rewards, or or we have these like company wide bonuses, the com- where everybody gets a hundred dollar gift certificate at Christmas, or everybody uh, you know gets the the trip at the end of the year, and there's it is totally runs against the grain of their mindset that people should be rewarded for what they actually produce. Now, I said this before, but I'm going to say it again because it, it gets coming up a lot lately. And what we're talking about here, that this sense that my value is higher and I should be rewarded for that, is very different from some kind of sense of entitlement because their assessment of their increased performance is is really valid. Like they really are producing more. And the reason I say this comes up a lot more lately is you hear a lot of disparaging marks made about millennials and about managing millennials. And what's funny to me is like this this whole uh, every professional conference you go to, there's going to be some session for all of the old timers in the group which are currently baby boomers, I guess. Uh and and it's going to be talking to that old timers group about how do you manage millennials, right? And what's funny to me is that 20 years ago, I was going to these conferences as a young guy right out of college, and there were the same sessions on how to manage Gen Xers, which is my generation. I'm 42 years old. So the language hasn't changed any. Like People are still like, oh, how do we manage these young whippersnappers? And I think a lot of the you know a lot of people equate millennial with this entitlement attitude. I'm not going to get into that today, but I will tell you that if you're dismissing this kind of pay for performance, this kind of value increasing expectation, and you're dismissing it just because it's coming from a bunch of 20 year olds in your organization, you are missing the boat. Like I guarantee you, yes, there are some of them who just feel entitled and they feel like they should get it because they should get it. But there are as a subset of those, possibly a majority of those, I don't know what your situation is, but there's a group of those that validly can point to their increased performance and you're not rewarding it and they are rightly ticked off about it because they see this inconsistency. Now, if you're wondering whether this is you, wondering whether this is you or not, right, it's a very easy way to spot right? because you can tell these organizations from a mile away. They have they have basically have two crops of employees. They have a long term stable crop of employees. These are people who have been there for nine, ten, eleven, twelve, fifteen, twenty years. Right? They've been there and they're just doing their thing and they're doing their thing and they're good at it and they just knock it out and they don't complain and they come back and they get their hundred dollar gift card every year. Yada yada yada. And then there's another group and they are constantly churning. Like there is no middle ground. And like in an organization of like 20 people, there's going to be about 50% has been my experience that are this kind of stable crop of folks that have been there for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. And then there's a crop of folks who are at max like two, three years. And they can't keep anybody past that two or three year mark. And the reason is because the professionals in that two to three year group or the, the 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 group with less seniority 
they only stick around so long because they see all this stuff and that they see that longer term crop. Now I'm not saying there are no professionals in that longer term crop. There are a few who have managed to just stick it out and bridge the gap. And they're usually the few who have bridged the gap by attaining some level of equity or ownership or, or title status in the organization. So they, in, in their formative years of like four, five, six, seven years of employment with this group, they were not getting rewarded. They, they kind of grit their teeth and bore it, and they, they bought into this line that we all have to earn our stripes and I shouldn't have to recognize your performance with any kind of rewards. And then they finally got to a level where they were so valuable to the organization that a switch was flipped and they become equity owners. They're offered partnership or they get uh, you know, some kind of title or they, they rise to a level in the organization where their paycheck has to go up because if they lost them, it would be detrimental to the business. But you have this gulf between, the no man's land between, three, four years of performance and like eight, nine years of performance. And in that gulf is where you see a ton of turnover. And it happens a lot because it's easier to hire professionals than it is to reward them. So you can set up, because here's the thing, what we're talking about is an ongoing system, which by definition is much harder to run than a one-time event. And hiring people is transactional. Transactional means it's a, it has a definite beginning and a definite end. I know I see a need for the job position. I advertise the job position. That's the beginning. And I go through vetting all my candidates, collect, collecting resumes, vetting candidates, doing my interviews, doing follow-ups, and I hire the person. And I'm done. And I'm not saying that hiring is easy, but compared to running and managing a business where you have to consistently recognize people's performance, come up with ways to measure it, come up with ways to reward it, hiring is a piece of cake compared to that. So it's very easy, relatively speaking, to bring professionals into the group. It's fairly difficult to bridge that gap to manage them and keep them on board and make them you know, long-term, cohesive part of your organization. It's much harder to build the skills and discipline to, to reward those professionals than it is to bring them in the door. And some of the long-timers will, will go without rewards, like we talked about earlier. So you, you're kind of blind to it, and you hear things from employers in this group like, you know, it's so hard to find good people. No, it's not. You get good people running through your doors every day. It's hard for you to keep good people because they recognize that you're not a good employer and they go somewhere else. So I see this so often. It's it's almost uh I would say it's almost 100%. Uh unless you come into a group an organization that has a full-fledged pay-for-performance compensation system, you're going to find this. And I'm not advocating that you go out and do a full-fledged pay-for-performance compensation system. Oh, well, I am advocating for that. But I'm not, I don't want you to take that big, giant leap as a result of this podcast. That's not the action step I want. All I'm talking about is putting in place a few simple rewards. Remember, measurable things that are self-trackable. That's the whole theme of today, self-trackable. So... If you can just do that, you're going to be able to start to bridge this gap and cover that no man's land of three, four, five, six, seven years of employment where people really start to become a, a part of your organization and you're building something that's bigger than your own personal uh, you know, personality. And, and it's held together by a culture of people who are constantly bringing new professionals in and 
continuing to nurture them until they become long-term contributors to the organization. Now you're not going to keep everybody, and I don't think you should keep everybody. I think, you know, there's, of the people who come to work for you, there's a very small percentage that are going to work for you forever. Your job is to nurture and grow them and make them better human beings and, and better professionals and then release them out into the world where their value can multiply. Because in, in general, people are going to develop much faster than a business's capacity to keep up with their expanding skill sets and, and potential. So, you know, I've definitely seen this in, in my case where I hire some very smart young people and I'm able to keep on keep up with them for two or three years, but they are growing as far as their skill set and their personality and their capacity as professionals. They're growing at a rate that is far beyond my ability to grow the company and keep up with them. So like, you know, they, a good example is, you know, if you hire a staff accountant and they, during the term of their two-year employment with you, they not only pass the CPA exam and become a CPA, but they start bringing in their own client business. Uh, They really go to school on the work that they're managing and they get to a point where they can review other people's work and they're really ready for a supervisor's position. But if you've already got two supervisors and you're going to have to add $250,000 worth of business to bring on another one, you're not going to keep up with them. You're going to have to go out and you know, they're, you're going to have to basically release them to go work for a business that is at least, you know, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 bigger than your business so that they can continue to grow and expand. And that business probably isn't going to grow fast enough with them. And it's not until we get to, you know, I would say our 40s, 50s, that our personal development reaches a point where businesses can keep up with it. And when you're in your 20s and 30s, you're learning things so fast, you're acquiring new skills so quickly, things are happening at a rate that most businesses just aren't able to keep up with. So that's an aside. Don't feel bad about turnover. I think turnover is a healthy part of an organization if the reason for the turnover is people are growing beyond your ability to keep up with them. But if turnover is because people work with you for two or three years and they recognize that they're not being rewarded for their performance and they go somewhere else, you need to recognize that and take steps to improve it. So let's talk about the upside of turning amateurs into pros. It's, it's kind of, I think it's hard to tell when somebody's ready to turn pro if you don't have some kind of self-trackable reward system in place. Because you can't see into the minds and psyche of the individuals. All you have to look at is their performance. And if there's no reward there for that performance, some people aren't going to make the connection between the reward and performance and make the leap on their own. They need the incentive of the reward to motivate their behavior. Now, there are some professionals who are going to do it regardless of whether there's a reward or not. And those are the people who are going to leave you if you don't have a system in place. Like their their performance is improving. You don't have a reward. They get frustrated because there's no meritocratic system and everything's arbitrary, kind of socialist idea of handing out rewards and they get fed up and they leave. But there's another group of people who are sitting down there and they're, they're looking at reasons to be motivated, reasons to go out and do things that, that are going to expand their skill set and expand their, their uh, value to the organization. And you're not providing those. And so they just don't do them. But when you do put something in place, some kind of reward system in place, and they, they go, oh, maybe I should change my behavior a little bit to take advantage of the reward. And then they find out, I'm pretty good at this. Oh, and I kind of enjoy it. And, and one of the things that you need to recognize that can really work in your favor here is that tracking and measuring stuff in and of itself is going to improve people's performance. 
there's there's some marginal amateurs that just with a little bit of performance improvement they could turn pro the switch could flip and one of the things that i i do not agree with is this whole follow your passion mindset i think you should follow what you're good at especially if you have a family and your responsibility is to put food on the table and keep a roof over your family's head uh but one of the things that I think you see, if you can put some kind of reward system in place that will start to incentivize the amateurs in, in your world to take it, kick it up a notch, they'll realize that they're good at something, and that feeds a desire to do more of it. So nothing feeds excellence like a recognition of competency. So if you first recognize that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm okay at this, maybe I could get a little better, and you get a little bit better, and you've realized... I'm not just okay. I'm pretty good at this. And then you, you want to develop a skill of excellence. And then you become excellent at it, and you're on fire. You do not want to ever fall below excellent. So having some kind of reward system in place to jumpstart those amateurs is a great side benefit. So it's not just about keeping the the pros that you already have working for you retained. It's also about bringing up the folks that could, with a little bit of, of performance improvement, make that leap. I think uh, the last thing I'll say about th- this area of bringing amateurs up is, and I did a video about this a couple days ago on YouTube. I will link to it in the show notes. But ambition is kind of that secret ingredient that really drives uh, achievement within an organization. So you can have somebody at the bottom of an organizational chart. They have no skills. They have no experience, but they're going to rise up through the ranks of that organizational chart because they're ambitious. The skills and the experience are just a matter of time for them. And the, the ambition side of that, it's kind of hard. I mean, you can look at people and you can talk to them and you can you can try to discern whether they have ambition or not, but there's a lot of people who can fake ambition, right? There's a lot of people who know how to talk the talk. They they use all the $10 words, and it sounds like, yeah, they're real go-getters, but then you watch their work performance, and it's just not there. Well, ambition is one of those things that really, really feeds this self-tracking system. If you give me self-trackable things that I can measure, and I am ambitious, I am going to keep track of them. And I could see this in practice when I was working in a public accounting firm, and I was still having to keep timesheets back in the day before I knew better. Uh, Well, I didn't really have a choice, but keeping timesheets. And you could tell who was destined for partnership. And this was when I was in, I was 26, 27, 28 years old. You could tell the people who were going to be future partners. And they were the ones who and and to get to go back really far this is when we had to keep timesheets with you know paper and pencil and turn them into the office administrator like we weren't even trusted to key in our own time and so you could tell the people who were going to rise to the ranks because they had a spreadsheet where they kept track of their own hours because it was important to them to know where they stood so we all had these and this is this was a firm that did not have a self-trackable reward system in place. So this goes back to my assertion that the people who are top performers are already self-tracking this stuff even when there's no reward there available for them because by nature, they're professionals and they want to know what whether their performance is getting better or not. So you could tell the people who had ambition, 
the people who wanted to rise up through the ranks, who wanted to own their own firms or be partners one day, because they all had their own little spreadsheet or access database or something that they were putting their hours into every day so they could see what I know that the partners are going to be looking at this stuff at the end of the year. I don't want to wait to the end of the year for the black box to spit out my my productivity or, or their measure of my effectiveness for the year. I want to know what that is today, and I want to know what it is at the end of today, and I want to know what it is at the end of tomorrow and the end of the next day and the end of the next day, and I don't want to wait on anybody else to tell me. So if you're looking for some kind of barometer to see whether you've got any budding young professionals under that crop of millennials that you like to disparage all the time because they feel entitled, put a self-trackable system out there in front of them and see who takes you up on it. And when they do, you'll know that that's a person whose internal ambition is there and they have that secret ingredient that is going to enable leadership in the future. So let's talk about Next steps, uh, and I'm, I'm going to start this by giving giving you a tool. If you go to axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash zero two eight, you'll find the show notes for today's episode. And there's a tool there; it's a template, PDF template that you can use to kind of take the next action steps in relation to rewarding professionals. And we're going to give that to you for free in exchange for your email address because we like to keep in touch with you. We won't spam you, but this is something we only send to the people who ask for it. So if you ask, we will give it to you. Uh, If you're listening in your car or you're out and about and you're listening to this podcast on your phone, if you just want to text the word self-track, all one word, S-E-L-F-T-R-A-C-K, if you text self-track to 44222, you will also get that tool. So here's what the tool does. It lays out the following steps, and it gives you a little bit, a little bit of, I got a grist for the mind to get you thinking uh, about how to do these things. So, number one, you have to define your professionals. What does a professional look like in your organization? How how would you quantify uh, the difference between a professional and an amateur in your organization? You know, is a professional the person who stays and until the last customer is taken care of, or is the and whereas the amateur is the person who punches out at five o'clock no matter how long the line is at the register? You know that that kind of stuff. What does a professional look like? Because you need to get a clear picture in your mind about the kind of performance that you want to reward. And the next thing you need to do is. Think about what is the thing that I can measure that will tell me whether that professional activity is actually happening. So number one, you're looking for what does it look like to have a professional here? And number two, you're saying, well, what are the, if we were going to, if we wanted to see that, what will we be measuring? How could we put a yardstick against that? And then number three, refining that measurement. So it's not just enough to measure. Like there might be plenty of ways you can measure. Like you say, well, we could we could do customer satisfaction survey and we could retain a firm every six months to call a random sample of our customers and see how happy they were with our performance. And then we would know whether we have professionals working for us or not. Okay, that uh, that is a valid measure. Now in step three, I want you to go back and ask yourself, is that measure self-trackable? Because what I just gave you an example of is not a good place to start. Yes, it is, it's a measure that can lead to increased performance, but we need to go back and think about something that's self-trackable. So define your professional, define what professional activity looks like in your organization. Number two, what are the measures that can lead to that increased performance? Number three, 
are the measures that I just listed, are they self-trackable and easy for my people to, to, to take charge of, track themselves on? And then number four, once we've figured out what the measures are and they're easy enough to, to track, you need to give your folks a basic tool that they can use, understanding that some are going to pick up the basic tool and use it, and some are not going to pick up the basic tool. They're going to develop their own tools. Right? That's a hallmark of professionals. But at least giving them a place to start ensures that if you've got one of those ambitious amateurs and they're lacking the skill and experience, but you feel like they're able to make the leap into professional, you know, a professional grade team member, at least you're giving them the basic tool set that they need to get started. And when I say basic, I mean basic, like the very rudimentary thing. And my preference for this kind of stuff is paper and pencil. I love technology. I've got just about every gadget you can imagine, multiple computers I carry on, tablets, watches, all that good stuff. But when it comes to adopting a new system, pencil and paper is the best thing because it's the simplest. So give them a basic tool. And then the fifth thing is to set up your reporting. So this goes to that distinction we talked about between self-tracking and self-reporting. This is your verifiable gold standard reporting mechanism. So you've identified the behaviors or you've identified the measure that you're going to be able to use to to uh, tell whether you've got this high performance or increased performance. And this is how you're going to, to know to the penny, to the hour, to the customer, to the decimal point, whatever, exactly what the number is. It's not just compiling all the self-tracking spreadsheets that are out there and all their bits and pieces and forms uh, and and methodologies, you know, whatever people might happen to be using. This is what the business relies on to know exactly what the number is. And typically this is something that doesn't happen. You know, you might not be pulling this reporting mechanism every single day. This might be something that you only go to when it's actually time to pay out those rewards on a month or a quarter or something like that. But it's it's like within a, a margin of error of the self-tracking stuff that is acceptable to everybody. So it's like it's not like somebody's going to keep track on their self-tracking stuff and go, oh, I'm knocking it out of the park, and then your report comes out and it shows that they're in the bottom quartile. That's just never going to happen. So, But you can't just give them the simple tool without building something on your side that is going to be the gold standard that you know you can verify all of their self-reporting with. So that's step five. And then step six is to announce the reward. What is What's the reward going to be? When are they going to get it? And what's the standard they have to meet to get the reward? All right, so those three elements are also covered in this tool. So, you know, just to give you a, a quick example of this. Uh, if We work with a lot of clients that uh, their business depends on retention, and retention depends on the customer coming back ever so often. So in some cases, if it's like a retail environment or something like that, then you're 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 kind of limited in how often you can get them back. You can send you can get their email address and you can do, build marketing campaigns and you can offer incentives and that kind of stuff. But ultimately, you know, whether or not they show up is it's it's not as easy to influence as some other businesses. Like if you have a business where people um sign up for a recurring service and their credit card gets charged every month when you come and mow their lawn or clean their pool or whatever retention in those businesses tends to be much higher because it's just easier. People get in the habit of paying you to do your thing, and as long as you don't screw up, you retain the customer. And then you have this middle ground of people who, it's not exactly a retail environment, 
and it's not something where they automatically get charged every month, but maybe they need to come see you every three months or every six months or something like that. And a dentist office is a good example because their business is driven by teeth by dental hygienists, so teeth cleaning. You go in to get your teeth cleaned, and that's where they discover you've got cavities or your bridge needs work or your bite's off or all that stuff. And that's where they upsell you. And that if you want to get a, a purely capitalist term, they upsell you things like fillings and new bridges and caps and crowns and all that. But it all starts with that cleaning appointment. So getting you to come to your regular cleaning appointments is the sole determiner of how much revenue a dentist will earn in a particular year. So, And the percentage of clients that keep their six-month cleaning or their uh, four-month cleaning appointments is a good measure of retention. So if on average 80% of our, our patients keep their cleaning appointments and come in when scheduled, then we know we're doing a pretty good job. So when you when it comes to those types of businesses, it all hinges on making the next appointment at the end of the previous appointment. So if you let the customer get out of the chair, go to the counter, pay their bill, and walk out the door without scheduling their next appointment, your numbers start to tank very, very quickly. So I was working with a business, and and this is this hap- this happened uh, this has happened so many times I can't count them now, but. A real recent example that's very similar to the one I'm going to share happened just a couple days ago. A system process that was tweaked in the last 30 days, and a couple days ago I found out that it's having great results for them. So one of the things that we will often put in place is one of these very, very simple reward systems for the person who's responsible for booking that next appointment. And if it's the person... Uh, it's typically the dental hygienist in a dental practice that is responsible for booking that next appointment. Sometimes it's the person at the front desk, but more and more we're seeing that they kind of split that responsibility up and they give the hygienist access to the calendar and they can go ahead and schedule things with the patients. So we said we want uh, our standard is 96% of our patients. So only four in 100 walk out of here without having booked their next appointment. And if you can get to 96%, we'll give you a $200 bonus every month. So at the end of every month, you go to the dental hygienist, and if 96% of their customers booked an appointment at the end of their last session, they get the $200 bonus. It might be 86%. I don't remember. But regardless, one of the things that the dental hygienists have is a tally sheet. And every single day, they have two columns. One column is for book next appointment, and the other column is did not book next appointment. So it's very easy for them at the end of the day to add up and say, I saw 10 people for teeth cleanings, and nine of them booked their next appointment. Or I saw 10 people, and 10 of them booked their next appointment. And then there's another sheet that goes behind that that they have for the month, and it's got 31 rows on it, and it just has the same two numbers, number uh, total number of appointments, number that booked next appointment, number that didn't book next appointment. And at the end of the month, they can add up for themselves and they can keep a running tally. I think there might even be a column for running tally of the percentage of people who have booked their next appointment. Very, very simple system. And it hardly ever varies from the official record keeping when they go into the calendar scheduling database and they pull out the events for a patient seen that next month and they count how many of those patients who had teeth cleanings have a next scheduled appointment event. That's their official reporting mechanism. So it's self-tracking. It's, it's very easy, but it also has a, an element of reporting that's not self-reporting. 
So that's basically it. I think that when you looked at, look at professionals in the light of uh, that turning pro Stephen Pressfield analogy, you really start to understand it's super important for you to come up with systems to reward these folks because the fact is they're just not going to wait forever for you to do it. And they'll go find somebody else who will, or they're going to go out and start their own business and hopefully not repeat the same mistakes that they've experienced working for somebody else. So I'm Joey Brannon. I'm your host. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of Axiom Podcast. We will see you here next week.